นโมทัสสะกุวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาทัวรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาทัวรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดมังสังขังนวัสสา As I was saying at the introduction, this discourse, the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, the first discourse that the Buddha gave on the full moon of the month of Asala, to his Five spiritual companions that had previously accompanied him on his quest. It's the foundation of all the other teachings that the Buddha gave, and all the permutations or interpretations of Buddhism all stem from this. And so, on this occasion, all around the world today, and for the last two thousand. Six hundred or so years, uh, millions of people have been chanting, reciting this discourse, and, and it's not uh, that difficult to understand once you learn the very basics of of Pali. You can get the gist of it, and it's uh, it can be very inspiring, uplifting exercise to to align yourself with the tradition, with the many millions of Human beings who have uh, decided to transform their suffering into wisdom and compassion by way of the Buddha's understanding. In summary, what this uh, discourse says and starts off with a very simple and clear presentation. The Buddha points out that there's these. Two extreme ways of conducting ourselves. There's these two tendencies of getting lost that human beings have: the tendency to get lost in pleasure, and the tendency to get lost in pain. And then goes on to point out that there's a there's an alternative to getting lost, getting caught up in these extreme modes of conduct. And he called it the Majima Patipata. In the middle way, and and then the rest of the discourse is the explanation of that. First, there's the eightfold path, and he points out samma, ditti, samma, sankapa, samma, vajra. We're all familiar with the right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, and and then further it goes on to talk about the. The four noble truths, and then explains each of these, each of the four, and then further goes into detail, pointing out that each four has got three levels of insight or three stages of understanding, which makes up twelve stages of these four noble truths. And so, this is what, as I said, all the Buddhist tradition is based on. And often, you see the the wheel. That's what this Dhamma Chakra is. The the wheel of Of truth, the wheel of Dhamma, the Dhamma Chakra Pavatana, the turning of the wheel that the Buddha uh, initiated on this occasion. And you often see the wheel 
will have 12 spokes in it. Our wheel only has eight, presumably representing the eightfold path, but you'll often also see the traditional Dhamma Chaka, the traditional wheel of Dhamma with 12 spokes in it. That's what it's referring to. So symbolically, it uh, can be an inspiration, remind us that there is this huge body of faith in the wisdom of the Buddha. It's been, it's been around for over 2,500, 2,600 years. Human consciousness has been aligning itself with this, this inquiry, with this practice. And, and although our materialistic way of thinking might not necessarily immediately recognize or feel drawn by tradition and lineage, you know, start to familiarize yourself a little bit with with the the goodness and the profundity of these these pursuits of the individuals throughout the millennia throughout the, the centuries then perhaps we can start to get a feeling for what a huge good fortune what a huge privilege it is to have come across this teaching I was talking this morning with Somebody, uh, the, when I think about it, the, I have a feeling of, of almost dread of uh, what would happen if I hadn't come across the Buddha's teaching. Because the, the chaos that probably most of us can still remember in our adolescence, uh, the apparent chaos of life, is really a challenge if there's no way of, of making sense of it, if we can't find order within this chaos. Well, it helps to know that there's been millions of human beings uh, throughout history who felt the same. But that confusion is not an obligation. We don't have to allow our attention to become uh, defined and caught up in the chaos. That within the chaos, the Buddha said, there is order. Within apparent chaos, there is order. And the word for this order is, is Dhamma. It's, it's reality, it's truth. And, and as I was saying the other day, it's not, of course, uh, something to merely believe in. Mm. We can feel good because we've come across something which doesn't require us to compromise our intelligence and, and just go along with the Buddha was inviting, specifically inviting us to inquire and wanted us and spent the rest of his life from, from 36 years on till he died, spent the rest of his life um, finding ways of skillfully guiding people towards understanding, not just believing. Yes, inspiring faith. Faith is a, is a profound force. The first of the five spiritual faculties and certainly needs to be cultivated in a skillful, appropriate way. But that faith is that's like the energy that nourishes us, inspires us, fuels us on the journey. And the journey is a journey of investigation and then hopefully eventually realization. That's what the Buddha and all the great teachers have been uh, encouraging us towards. So, so if we do, uh, if you do, and I hope you do, get around to maybe downloading a recording of this. Uh, there's a very nice recording on the internet from the Abhayagiri monks 
chanting the Dhamma Chakrabhavatana Sutta. And you can chant along with it. It's an inspiring exercise to do. You can learn to recite it for yourself. And I remember there was a period in my life where I was, I was uh, confronted with some serious circumstances. It, it happened, my parents had come to visit and I was uh, staying with some friends in London and, and uh, my father had had a stroke and was in hospital, uh, seriously ill. Had brain surgery and my mother obviously was very distressed and, and trying to calm the mind down through meditation uh, was not very effective. But I can remember, at least on one such occasion, uh, picking up the Dhammachakapawatana Sutta and reciting it. And, and what, a, what an inspiring, encouraging uh, exercise that can be. Uh, so it might be something that you choose to listen to, to study, to read, and perhaps even recite. But more important than that is to get the message that there is something we can do about this predicament of unawareness and confusion that we find ourselves in. We all find ourselves in this situation over and over again where, as it was detailed in that discourse as we were just talking about, there's the suffering of old age, sickness and death, there's a suffering of not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, and and losing the goodness that we've had, and, and sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. The, the Buddha spells out some of the various expressions of disappointment and frustration that we are all painfully familiar with. And, but the thing is, what do we do about it? Most of human Activity seems to be, if we're honest, seems to be a way of coping or, or even avoiding, trying to avoid. You know, avoiding is some sort of a coping strategy, not a very successful one. But, but coping and avoiding are, are the opposite of what the Buddha intended and his teaching was, as I said, inviting us to turn the light of attention inwards and see if we can't come to recognize and understand the dynamic of dukkha, the dynamic of this word he used, dukkha, this dynamic of suffering that, that for him, he realized you can be free from. Again, as I was saying the other day, you know, pain, generally it's the case, you, that's, that's part of what happens uh, from time to time. Uh, physical, emotional pain, we all experience it. But the extra bit that we add to it, which the Buddha identified as clinging, that's not necessary. So all this effort, this articulation of the, the, the Dhammachakapawatana Sutta and all the commentaries that have come since... Uh, various ways, various uh, skillful means for for pointing our attention so we can learn to take full responsibility for what we're doing that turns life into suffering. Now, even if we study the Buddha's teachings and we feel confident in this, an explanation along these lines, that's still not going to transform us before 
any sort of transformation takes place, we need to investigate, we need to invest in, we need to invest in our you know, Dhamma or as a Pali word, investigation of Dhamma, investigation of reality. And herein lies the uh, continual and again uh, skillful uh, means that the Buddha and all the wise beings since then uh, encourage us towards the inner life, uh, contemplation, wise reflection, meditation. Uh, and so this is what we can do about it. Now, just to believe in the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths and the Middle Way, just to believe in it, mm, is, is almost certainly not going to take us where we want to go. But the belief, the confidence, the faith, the conviction is an important first step and encourages us towards perhaps hopefully slowing down, putting time aside and as I saying, turning the light of attention inwards rather than as we're normally doing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching outwardly to the sense objects, sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and also following the mental impressions, uh, the sixth sense door, the mind. We have a habit of following our attention outwards, following the movement. Uh, as we would all already be aware, the encouragement in meditation is not to say there's anything wrong with that. We're not saying that there's something wrong with the world or wrong with the sense objects. But that if we only follow them, we tend to get lost. And when we get lost, we behave in crazy ways. We're kind of insane, actually. And that's how the Buddha starts out this discourse. And basically, he says there's two insane ways of behaving and one sane way of behaving. The two insane ways of behaving, one is is karma sukhani kani yoga, which is indulgence and pleasure. And the other insane way of behaving is atakila matani yoga, which is indulging in pain. And these two insane or extreme ways of behaving are, the Buddha said, a dead end. Well, it's more subtle than that, but that's the message. They're not fruitful. And he had tried them himself and come to see that they're not fruitful. So he wasn't, this wasn't just an intellectual exercise he'd performed. He, he, he cultivated indulgence and pleasure for 29 years. And apparently he was very successful at it. And then he cultivated uh, the ascetic practices uh, to the, um, as extreme as you can get. And so, but neither extreme took him to the place of realization. And then he did, through his interest and his commitment, his investigation, come to realize what he called the middle way, the sane alternative, which expresses itself, as we said, the Eightfold Path. So, if we presumably we all have already found inspiration in this uh, invitation, uh, this analysis 
of the predicament we find ourselves in and we want to apply ourselves to it. And so how does this translate? It's saying it's not something to just believe in, it's not just uh, analysing the Dhamma Chakrapawatana Sutta. You can analyse every single Pali word and the etymology of every word and, and all sorts of interpretations could possibly come out of that. But sooner or later, we're going to reach the limit and feel frustrated. And that's the point where we stop following the thinking and get a little quiet. Follow the inclination to feel inwards, a feeling investigation rather than a thinking investigation. You stop thinking about the Four Noble Truths. And make the effort, apply our attention in a way whereby we start to experience a settling of the mind. It's again, presumably all of us, to some degree, to varying degrees, have, have had this experience now. We've been meditating long enough to know that the right kind of effort in the made in the right direction, in the right manner, the activity can settle and then just as if the wind stops blowing over a pond and the water settles, you can see a reflection. You experience the lake in a different way. You experience the mind in a different way when some of the coarse level of thinking settles. And this is interesting, this is valuable to have this experience for, for ourselves. Because with that settling comes another level of understanding. You, see, the, you start to experience some sort of, some degree of peacefulness. With that comes some increased degree of understanding. So, all right, that's what happened. If I can just let go of the habit of following the proliferations, following the liking, following the disliking, following the tendency to indulge in pleasure, following the tendency to indulge in pain. If we can just let go of that, then this is what happens. And so then we, our interest goes to another level, yeah. intensifies, and our faith, our confidence, our trust increases out of that experience. We start to at least intuit, start to see for ourselves that following thinking, 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 or or eating more nice things, or seeing nice more objects, or smelling more nice fragrances, and, and trying to get rid of the unpleasant thoughts and the unpleasant fragrances and the unpleasant sensations, all that following, liking and disliking, just stirs everything up. And we didn't arrive at that perception by thinking, but we experimented. As I said, by turning the light of attention inwards, withdrawing our attention from the habit of following by way of experiment, not by way of judgment, and then coming to a sense for ourselves, all oh, right, this is possible, this is possible. Yeah. Now, if we are in too much of a hurry, as probably the Buddha himself was, or the Bodhisattva, before his enlightenment, before he became the Buddha. He was known as the Bodhisattva. He, he was probably in too much of a hurry and, and tried this and tried that and it didn't work and it took him quite a while before he tried all the uh, 
techniques that everybody else had tried and, and discovered his own path, his own way that took him to realization. Similarly, uh, we also will inevitably try things that don't work. But that's not wrong, so long as our effort is contained within uh, the five precepts, and, uh, then we're not going to go too far wrong. And we can learn from the mistakes we make. And, and so if in our meditation, for instance, we make some initial effort and then we, we have some peaceful experience and, and then the next thing you know, we, we just want to repeat it. That's normal, perfectly normal in the beginning. And then we try and do that. We try and repeat it. But it doesn't work. Why is it not working? Because this kind of effort we're making, this kind of trying we're making, is now it's not the effort we started off with, which was a free, open, interested, exploring kind of effort. Now it's tethered or it's polluted with the memory with the de- of what happened before and the desire to have it again. In other words, it's now distorted with greed. And no amount of thinking about that is going to change it, but if we're careful enough, patient enough, and then eventually skillful enough, we start to see clearly enough for ourselves and then letting go happens. And then once again, our confidence intensifies, our faith increases, our energy and enthusiasm and interest deepens. So then if we persevere with this following this invitation that the Buddha gave us to investigate the dynamic of dukkha, not just avoiding it, not just distracting ourselves from it, but wanting to learn the lesson of life and make the most of this hugely privileged opportunity we have to get wise, to realize true wisdom and compassion. If we persevere with this, well then it's natural that we find the skills that the other people who've been practicing longer than us have, we too can cultivate. This is not just something that a privileged few have. The Buddha gave his teaching for everybody. You might be aware how at the time when the Buddha was alive there was the uh, suggestion from from some of the monks that uh, that his teachings been f- be formulated in a in a, uh, uh, in a fancy elitist uh, style, and because that's so lofty and so wonderful that that's, in their opinion, the way of honouring them. It wasn't that they were necessarily trying to have a monopoly on them, but they, they thought this was praiseworthy. But the, the Buddha pointed out, no, that's not wise. That's not wise. I want my teachings to be available for everybody. In fact, he probably made uh, a few enemies because he insisted on giving his teachings in language, the, the common parlance of the people, that, that, that men and women together, rich and educated, poor and, and uneducated, could understand. And it's very important that we have this appreciation. This is not something that only a privileged elite, uh, specially born skilled individuals can do. Uh, if that was the case, the Buddha would most certainly have said so. Uh, 
but that's not the case, and he didn't say so. So let's not make the mistake of thinking that we haven't got what it takes. We don't know what particular abilities we have, what particular potential that we have. What we do know is that we experience suffering, we experience dukkha. We're all experiencing old age sickness, and eventually we will experience death. And we all experience sorrow, pain, lamentation, grief, and despair. And the Buddha said, this is the, this is the context in which we perform this investigation. Uh, this is the material, this is the stuff of our investigation. So it's not an indictment against us because we're suffering, we all suffer. Now, the question is, do we approach the task with sufficient patience and humility and skill so that we come to appreciate the benefits for ourselves? So coming back, uh, my recommendation is to come back to this, this first discourse of the Buddha, to study it, to become familiar with it, and to let it inform our underlying view, the fundamental view with which we live our spiritual life. Yeah. Uh, eight factors of the Eightfold Path, they all begin with the, the first one, Sammaditi, right view, or perfect view, or clear view, clear seeing. Yeah. If the view is not accurate, then whatever effort we make, we're not going to experience the full benefits. And so, using this teaching on the the middle way, the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths to establish our underlying view which informs all of our effort for all of our lives. And keep it simple. We all have very clever minds. We've all been thoroughly educated to think, think, think and to the point where sometimes we can't even stop thinking it's very painful but the the, uh, the positive side of that is that we can use that thinking we can tame that thinking we can discipline that thinking in a good way, in a wholesome way yeah. this passion that manifests as wild thinking or wild anger or wild anxiety this is what we're working with. Again, we're not just working with concepts. Sometimes the way the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, are analysed and commented on and in, the, in the tradition, you can make it look like it's a mental exercise and, or mental training. Yeah. Fair enough to one, one aspect, mental discipline and mental training, but it's much deeper than that. It's the wildness, the passion uh, that manifests in anger and fear and keeps us awake at night and fills us with dread when we're about to die. That is much more than just the thoughts that we have. And so that's what we engage with. And so if we get too complicated, too fancy, then maybe we don't come into having a working relationship yeah, with these, this wild energy. Right? So the very beginning of the Buddha's teaching is these two extremes. 
Two ways of getting lost. Getting lost in pleasure, getting lost in pain. Getting lost in liking, getting lost in disliking. It can be a very, very skillful discipline to define our practice in terms of becoming acutely aware of these two movements. Liking is a movement. Disliking is a movement. If we become skilled at the inner life and the contemplative life, the meditation practice, and start to recognize some degree of stillness, then from that perspective we can see this movement. Yes, an impression comes into the mind and, and then liking happens. Oh, all right, liking. There's the knowing of the liking. There's the liking, that movement. We call it liking and then there's the knowing of the liking. Okay. Maybe you can learn to stay with the knowing instead of following the liking. Maybe you can learn to stay with the knowing instead of following the disliking. And that's a different experience. That's actually peaceful. If we can stay with the knowing and not follow the movement, there's a peacefulness there. And with that peace, in that peace, associated with that peacefulness, is a clarity and understanding. And we can cultivate that. This is one way of understanding training or taming the passions, taming the heart. We can keep it that simple, just investigate liking, disliking. Whatever's going on, if somebody irritates you, you can get all caught up in all sorts of analysis of why we dislike this person and what happened in our past and my psychology and their psychology and cultural differences and astrological differences and genetic propensities and chemical variations and whatever else and get very, very complicated, but doesn't necessarily help us let go of being caught up in the momentum, the movement of disliking. And there may be a place for for studying psychology and astrology and chemistry and all the rest of it, and that's called the world. Uh, Surely there are times to study and analyse the aspects, uh, expressions of the elements of the world. But that doesn't necessarily take us to wisdom. That's a different sort of work. What the Buddha was talking about was seeing through the world, seeing beyond the world, so we don't get lost in the world, whether it's the unpleasant aspects of the world or the pleasant aspects of the world. This is the spiritual work. The material work, yes, we study, we analyse the elements of the world, come to be able to accord with them and manipulate them and hopefully in ways that bring about increased well-being for everybody. But that still doesn't necessarily free us from our tendency to define ourselves as being caught up in the movement of the world. What I would have realised was that stillness, he realised his identity as being, as the stillness in which all this movement takes place. And he was undisturbed by any type of movement any liking or disliking or anything in between liking and disliking. No movement in consciousness could disturb the Buddha. The Buddha didn't experience himself to be the movement, he experienced himself to be the stillness in which all that movement was taking place, the space in which all that activity was taking place. Yeah. 
the middle way is the training, the taming of the wildness of our nature uh, in the direction of that realization. So this is what we're interested in. So with our meditation, we, we don't want to get too greedy, too caught up in wanting to be successful. There needs to be a, a really good dose of, of humility, of recognizing that there have been millions of people before us who started out like us. They also tried too hard, tied themselves up in knots and made their tangles tighter and more painful. But many of them, millions of them, also learnt to let go. To let go of the greed, to let go of the liking, to let go of the disliking. And operate from a place of peaceful understanding. In terms of how we apply this to here and now, in our own discipline of attention, it's a question of refining you know, we, in the beginning, we all we all start out like the Buddha did, with our uh, uninformed, uneducated approach. Mm. And probably some of us are kind of flailing around, just trying to make sense of things. And mm. hopefully, we don't make it too much worse. Mm. But it's a it's a matter of refinement. It's not going to happen quickly. It's a, and it, and it is, I think, useful if we understand it as a as a process of training or taming. Like, for instance, if you you're taming a horse, it happens to be that horses and humans can have a mutually beneficial relationship; they can help each other. But in the beginning, that wild horse doesn't have discipline. It's all about doing what it wants to do. And if you try to break it in, you, you can hurt the horse. You might even get hurt yourself in the process. We're not, we're not talking about breaking the spirit, that wild, passionate nature that we have. We're not talking about judging it or condemning it. But we are talking about taming it, training it. Gradually, respectfully, respecting that wild energy, And in terms of in terms of actual practice, it takes a lot of preparation. I started off in the beginning by talking about this path of practice as a journey. If you're going on any journey, if it's a serious journey, we do need to prepare ourselves well. A lot of the journey is about preparation. And I think about my own efforts in meditation in the beginning and, and my greedy desires to have something interesting and just get a relief basically, to get a relief from the pain of confusion and it took a very long time a very long time before I started to see the benefits of a more gentle approach and really, really listening to others, the humility to listen to others unfortunately in the context of late 20th century and early 21st century Western society. Greed is advocated and arrogance is a credential. 
almost. And when we bring that untidiness, that rawness into our meditation, it can be very painful, very hurtful. But hopefully we do learn as we go along. As a saying, contained within the five precepts and give us a sense of safety. We're not going to go too far wrong. And instead of fantasizing and greedily striving for the goal, we pay attention to where we're at. Prepare the ground. Prepare ourselves for the journey. Like in meditation, we start not with dissociating from the body and disappearing into some split-off subtle realm where we try to manipulate our attention and have some sort of interesting spiritual experience. Humbly, patiently begin with the experience of being here in the body, receiving the body, including the body. First foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, bringing an awareness to the body, aligning the body, sitting upright. You read the description in the traditional teachings of the monk setting himself up for meditation, sitting upright, aligning ourselves, paying attention to how we're sitting. Why do we pay attention to how we're sitting? Because often our posture is an expression of our habits of attachment. The obstructions that we've got on a level of consciousness show up in the nervous system and the muscular systems, and maybe even eventually the the skeletal systems. The body is often a reflection of the mind. So if we're going to liberate the mind, find freedom on a level of consciousness, we don't ignore the body. We listen to the body, we include the body. So sitting upright, allowing the breathing to settle into the belly. Overly intellectual, head-oriented approach to life means the breathing is often up in the chest, identified with the emotions. You don't want to get too intensified so long as that we're identified in the realm of the emotions, it can be excruciatingly painful. So settling, letting the breathing settle into the belly. So beginning, for instance, a formal meditation exercise, beginning with aligning, paying attention to the body, aligning, settling. And softening, softening our attention. If we start our meditation all rigid and tense and, and twisted and hard, we can hurt ourselves. That's not the way to set out on a journey. First we, we learn to align, align sit upright and soften soften because the deluded ego is so willful deluded confused ego is such a willful animal and it conditions rigidity 
by mid-twenties, for a lot of us, rigor mortis is setting in. And we're so rigid already in our views and opinions. If we approach the spiritual exercises with hard, rigid quality of attention, it can be very difficult to learn. It needs extraordinary sensitivity. So we soften. Let the awareness of the body bring us to an alignment so the breathing settles. And then softening. And expanding. Again, particularly for us in the form of education that that we have from almost as soon as we're born we're taught to concentrate, focus, pay attention. And, and we're given objects. We're not given spaces to roam around in and to explore. We're given objects to focus on, televisions to be sat in front of, and gadgets to play with. And, and uh, young folk these days, very early on, the, the field of awareness is probably a very, very contracted space. But for all of us, uh, as soon as we learn to read and write, our field of attention and the tendency to contract and constrict Often we have a feeling of there's not enough space. There's not enough space for life. This wild energy that we experience ourselves to have is too much. It's, it's actually just life expressing itself. But we have the feeling it's all too much. It's not life that's too much. It's the, 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 the space that we're living in is not enough. But that's something that we do. We do this contraction of the field of awareness. We do it through our habits of compulsive egoic controlling. That's what the deluded ego loves doing. That's what it tries to master. Compulsive controlling. All egos are control freaks. So so in our meditation, in our spiritual journey, being very careful that we're not taking this into the practice. We're not setting out on this journey twisted and distorted and and, and hard and contracted. So as I was saying, preparing for the journey with the humility to acknowledge we don't know. We're setting out on exploration with interest, with carefulness, because it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. We can make mistakes, But it's important, so we want to get it right. And it's like riding a really powerful horse. You can't be too casual. <laughs> Fall off and get hurt bad. Yeah. Or driving a really powerful car. Yeah. Easy, easily uh, get killed. So the, the spirited exercises that we commit ourselves to are similarly very powerful and to some degree very dangerous. There's, there's an appropriate, there's a wise, there's a skillful way to engage them. So approaching it with the due care and attention, not just diving into the meditation technique and then trying to become some sort of a spiritual hero. 
Well, if we do start out like that, then when we start to suffer, to come back and again, to listen to others before, who've gone before us. And, yeah. Begin the meditation with a respectful sensitivity to where we're at, to our own experience. Yeah. Not trying to imitate other people. You can't never imitate anybody else. You may be able to emulate yeah, and learn from others, but we can't really imitate anybody else because we're not anybody else. So developing these skills right, in formal practice, not just diving into grasping the meditation technique with some greedy uh, desire to attain something, but starting from this experience, aligning, softening, expanding, and listening, listening. Listening in the sense of receiving, being receptive. The disposition of a disciple of the Buddha, as we see from the word sāvaka, the Pali word for disciple, is sāvaka. The etymology of that word is one who listens. Uh, that's the disposition of a student. Uh, these days, of course, we all focused on reading, and, and that has some benefits, but also has some serious disadvantages. Traditionally, it was... You learn from the teacher by listening, which is, is, is 360 degrees. It's like you're listening all around. It's an expanded field of awareness, an expanded sensitivity, listening to the teacher, which is very different quality of attention from focusing, narrowing down, and paying attention to these little black squiggles on a page and then going through a complicated mental process of deciphering and extracting meaning. You don't hear the tone of the teacher's voice when you're doing that, for one thing. But the receptivity, the mode of being receptive that comes when we listen can be a very skillful asset in practice. So it's a helpful suggestion. The other suggestions, these suggestions that I'm going through, aligning, softening, expanding, Listening. You know, listening. I mean, you may, you may choose to use the meditation object of listening to what Ajahn Sumedha calls the sound of silence. It can be a very skillful, useful meditation tool or technique. Yeah. But you may also just be listening to the sounds that surround you. Just listening. Just listening. And what that can do is conduce with putting us in a receptive mode. So long as we're still addicted to the mode of trying to extract meaning out of reading, it can be a very assertive application of attention. It can be feeding our greed to understand. What does this mean? greed energy going out through our eyes and, and we can take that into our meditation practice and it's very unhelpful so what we might find more helpful is the receptive mode you know, being available listening listening to the teacher listening to the teachings listening to life you know. so using the 
ear to take us into this mode of being receptive. So preparing ourselves for this path of inquiry with aligning by way of the body, aligning the body, settling upright, softening, expanding our field of awareness, being receptive by way of listening. And what we're receptive of is this moment. This moment is like this. It's just so. When the Buddha and all the realized beings lived in the world, they lived in this world. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching and cognizing, just as we do. They had bodies just like we have. But their consciousness was transformed because it was freed from the distortions that we suffer from, greed, aversion and delusion. These three distortions, which is the expression of unawareness, the enlightened beings are liberated from. So if we're interested, and surely we all are, in this experience, their experience, of freedom from suffering, then approaching the path of practice with a regular refreshing, reminding ourselves of the foundation, the fundamental view that the Buddha gave us. Don't get lost in anything. The very first utterance, the very first teachings the Buddha gave There are these two insane ways of relating to life, getting lost in pleasure and getting lost in pain. These two extremes, he pointed out. And then there's the majjima patipata, the middle way of knowing the tendencies to get lost. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.